You're listening to the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the world-leading tech incubator, the DMZ. In this podcast, each episode brings in the movers and shakers of the world to cover leadership mentality, tips for business owners, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's your host, Canada's leading podcaster, CPA and business strategist, Robert Gold, managing partner at Bennett Gold LLP. Once again, from high atop the Movers and Shakers Podcast Center in Toronto, high up on the 67th floor, live in the morning, we're way off to the east. I can see Dead Man's Bay, Newfoundland. I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Bennett Gold, LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. Today, again, I'm excited. We have a return guest. Tariq Fancy is with us. Tariq is the founder and CEO of the Rumi Initiative. He was last with us on an earlier podcast, February 2018. At that time, we talked about why nonprofits act like startups. I can't wait to get into where we are now. Tariq, welcome back to the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast. Thanks for having me again, Rob. Excited to be here. Tell me something. Before we really get into it, there was quite a transition from 2018. Rumi was doing small laptops, and now we're a whole different kind of venture. Let's just touch on what you were doing before, before we get into today's venture. So the first sort of iteration of Rumi, what we kind of internally call 1.0, we were trying to bring the free digital learning revolution to largely the offline world and the communities that were the least likely to access it, but clearly had the most to gain. And as we've grown, we grew to over 30 countries, we started to evolve the model into one that seemed to really fit what we were seeing on how people learn on mobile phones. And that's led to kind of an evolution of Rumi 2.0, which is based around the ideas of micro-learning, learning in quick five-minute snippets on your mobile. So let me give our audience a little bit of a background introduction to you, because I know that after your successful career in investment banking, where you were the first chief investment officer of sustainable investing for a real powerhouse, BlackRock, you founded the Rumi Initiative in 2013. It was a Google-backed tech startup, and your mission was to provide free education to all, to all. The platform has millions of learners in over 140 countries, as you were alluding to, and you've been the subject of case studies published by schools right up to the Harvard Business School. So let's talk about your journey to start Rumi. You went from being an executive at BlackRock to being a founder and starting your own nonprofit. What inspired you to create Rumi? And the order was slightly different. I had not been at BlackRock yet. I started Rumi in 2013, having spent a career in finance and, you know, sort of having this itch to do a bit more than that. And what pushed me off the edge of the diving board to really go all in on Rumi was that I had had a very close friend and roommate in business school. We did our MBA together. And he and I really bonded over the fact that we wanted to someday do something that we thought had some real social meaning. We were both working in you know, investment banking, there wasn't a lot of meeting in that. And we graduated and went back to banking because it was easy. And then uh, he contracted stage four cancer some years ago. And so he managed to successfully fight off stage four melanoma for two and a half years. And in that time, before he passed, he created a charity using cancer sports for, to drive education in parts of Kenya, uh, which is where my parents were born and raised. And that really kind of inspired me to start Rumi. I had the idea and knew it could work. And over the years, I did a quick stint where I went back into finance in 2018 and 2019. That was my time at BlackRock where I was sort of, deal was, hey, you've now done banking and you've done social bottom lines, right? So you've done financial bottom lines, done social bottom lines from the ground up. Can you merge the two doing sustainable investing? The answer was no, you can't. And I've gone public recently with a series of op-eds saying that Frankly, I think Wall Street is greenwashing the public. And that just really led me then to come back to Rumi because I realized that we could do a lot more making our solution based around micro-learning and 
scaling out you know, around the world. And that's what we're focused on now. I appreciate that timeline change because that changes my focus completely on how you put this thing together. You were in the not-for-profit startup stage, went back to finance or went into finance, and then came back and found the right niche. So, Rumi, does that actually mean something having to do with your roommate? No, it actually does. An interesting question. It actually has more to do with the poet, Rumi, Sufi poet and Islamic jurist who lived 800 years ago, whose work I've always liked. And so I just took the name Rumi. R-U-M-I, added an E on the end for education, and then the domain name was available, and that was really as scientific as the uh, origin story of the name gets. Well, with 800 years, you know it's got staying power. So why don't you tell us in your own words the mission of Rumi and why it's different from other online learning platforms? With Rumi, the, the most important thing is that we try to focus on the learner. Right? And we try to make it learner-centric and engaging as much as possible. Most education plays that I've seen focus on quality only. Right? They say, okay, well, we're going to give you an amazing high-quality program that will teach you X, Y, and Z. But the catch is that you have to sort of do it exactly the way they say you have to do it, which could mean you know, hours of lectures and fairly in-depth process that's very involved. We looked at it and thought, well, you know what, there's emerging research that shows that micro-learning or learning in five-minute snippets actually has over 20% higher learning retention. We also found that if you could do it in five-minute snippets, you could allow people then to use, you know, to learn when they're on the go, right, when they're waiting for the bus or they have a few minutes, which is how most mobile users, you know, do things. And so what we found really just over the last year as we launched this approach of microcourses called Bytes. We were doing that sort of evolution right as the pandemic struck and was seeing huge uptake. So we had zero courses, you know, a year ago. Now we have over a thousand and it's increasing at a very quick rate because it's driven by volunteer power. People say, why are you a nonprofit? You're a former banker. I tell them, listen, the best business model I ever saw working in Silicon Valley was Wikipedia. And so we're converting a lot of passion and, and energy of volunteers into real value in courses. And then during the pandemic, we've gone from zero learners at our Byte library at Rumi.org to you know over 100,000. And the content and the learners are accelerating quickly. And I think it's a testament to the fact that this actually doesn't compete with any other learning platform at all. If you can just do a quick five-minute lesson and get a dopamine rush, then you actually are competing with social media platforms, and that's really our goal. Well, I have to tell you that before the interview, and in order to see where you come from since we spoke three years ago, I had to spend a little bit of time on the site, and I got caught up in those short bite-sized and bite courses, however you refer to them. It was quite amazing to me. I covered a whole bunch of topics in really fast time. It's so simple to use, and you've got great contributors. I went to various different areas and was very impressed with what you brought to market. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. Rumi.org.org. Tell us how you describe a bite, because I've mixed up the term in, in my discussion here. A bite is really just any micro course on the platform that is generally, you know, five or six minutes in length, and they're made to be very, very engaging and interesting. And our logic for that is that if you really want to drive impact, if you want to drive social impact, you can't create a model that's donor-driven, which is what, unfortunately, many nonprofits do. They're just kind of hewing to whatever the donor says. To do in a nonprofit space, people come with their own theories, and they say do this and that. And the problem is they create a wonderful program that no one has any interest in doing. And so, you know, your impact is zero because no matter how good the program is from a pedagogical quality perspective, you know, if no one wants to do it, you're not going to have any impact. As we grew around the world and we're delivering to people's mobile devices, you know, ranging from kids in Detroit to 
kids in Syrian refugee camps and girls in Afghanistan, we saw a few trends that were very, very clear, regardless of culture and language and growth of learning content or anything else. And it was that people, you know, if you're going to compete and try to if you're going to try to be in a classroom, you know, you could have you have a captive audience. So you can lock the door and keep people in there for your one hour lecture. As all the educational systems learned as soon as the pandemic hit, if you try to educate someone on their phone and they're sitting at home, the competition, you know, suddenly is TikTok and, you know, Instagram and a whole bunch of apps that are very much designed to hack your attention and give you that dopamine rush. And that's actually where we're doing something that no other learning platform is doing. We surveyed teens, actually this was something in, in Detroit, we surveyed youth and found 88% said that, you know, what do bites remind you of? They listed social media platforms. And so the early evidence is that we're actually replacing social media time for people, which is, if you really think about it at the aggregate level, it's gigantic, right? Because as we grow it, you're going from a model where people are getting a dopamine rush and getting their attention hacked in order to give away their data to, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, so we can sell to advertisers, all of which is creating massive mental health problems for society. And we're allowing people to replace that with a learning option that didn't really exist before, you know, to kind of grab and do a discrete lesson in five minutes where actually you get a dopamine rush for doing something that over time is going to build your skills and really improve your life. Well, again, I was most impressed. Let's talk about some of your entrepreneurial development. And again, you started Rumi, went into finance, came back to Rumi. What advice would you give to an entrepreneur, an aspiring entrepreneur who wants to switch careers, switch industry and pursue their dreams of leaving the corporate world and really starting their own business, not for profit or otherwise? What do you say to them? I think the most important thing comes down to perseverance, right? Because if you have a very, very comfortable job where you get paid a comfortable salary, you have benefits, you have a bunch of things that make your lifestyle very, you know, predictable. Um, the downside is it could be boring as hell and, you know, you're sick of doing it. And so a lot of people look at leaving to do an idea that, you know, is their own. And I'd say the biggest things are, number one, you have to really believe in that idea, like at a fanatic level, because no matter what happens, it's going to be very, very difficult down the line and you're going to give up a lot of comforts to roll the dice. And it's very difficult to continue with that unless, number one, you know, you really love your idea. Like you're convinced that this is an idea to change the world. And number two, you know, you have the flexibility and the passion to just go hard at it for a period of time to really see if it works or not. And I think sometimes I see people, they want to be an entrepreneur and then they figure out they want to be an entrepreneur first and they're looking for an idea. I'm not sure that makes sense because you'll probably end up with an idea you don't love so much because you're kind of forcing it. Well, you know, you said something there that our regular listeners have heard me say for many years now, and that's what it takes to succeed as an entrepreneur. And that's two P's and an F, passion, perseverance, and focus. And you hit on every one of them. I was doing a presentation once and somebody yelled, no, no, the, the last F is fun. So I said, okay, it's passion, perseverance, focus, and fun. And you also said that. You better have some fun doing this. Now, what about barriers? You faced barriers when establishing Rumi from the beginning when you were a laptop until what we are now with Bytes. Tell us about the barriers and how you overcame them. The traditional startup challenges of trying to find product market fit, trying to convince people, whether it's financial backers or team members or, or whoever else, that this is an idea that they should take a plunge on also. All of those are the traditional sort of challenges of getting the whole thing together from scratch and going from a zero standing still position to actually getting something rolling. I think we had an added difficulty because having a nonprofit status, you know, it makes sense in certain respects. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I had people from the social impact space try to convince me on the merits of like for-profit businesses, which 
was crazy because I worked in finance my whole career until that point. And I would always tell them, I said, look, we need to be a nonprofit because we're driven by volunteer power, right? Like, it, it, it's like Wikipedia. It couldn't work as a for-profit because no one would contribute their time so that, you know, Jimmy Wales or, or the Wikipedia folks could sell their data or sell advertising. You know, we had to be a nonprofit, and that also added a bunch of difficulties that I wouldn't recommend to others around getting donor funding, which is very, very risk-averse in the nonprofit space. And it generally mitigates against innovation, which is one of the reasons why you see such, unfortunately, such little innovation coming out of the charity space in general. Let me challenge you that just for a second. As a bit of a rabbit hole, we have a not-for-profit client in our firm called 24GoodDeeds, 24GoodDeeds.ca. And if people take a look there, they actually brought innovation to the not-for-profit space because 24GoodDeeds sponsors 24 charities around the world. This past year, half were in Canada. I think next year, they're going to be almost all in Canada. When you make a donation or a contribution, you get an advent calendar shaped as a Christmas tree. And you open up one of those little windows every day as you count down towards Christmas, and it's the charity that you're sponsoring and you've got a VR code and you can go on your phone or what have you and learn more about the charity and how your money's being spent. So real, they actually brought some tech innovation into it. It's quite impressive to see that 24gooddeeds.ca. Last year was their first year. Let's go a little bit further onto the impact that you've had with COVID-19 and Rumi and remote learning. And we all know that this pandemic's had a real impact on education. Everything's transitioned to virtual learning. But despite this shift, a recent survey found 73% of students, they want the option to take fully online classes going forward. They're happy not to go back to class. So given these shifts, do you think you have to change any of your content strategies? First of all, I think there's no replacement for in-person learning, especially the social development parts around that. And so for school, you know, and for basic K-12, I personally think that the sooner we can get people back to school, the better. I'm doubtful that you get the same experience virtually. That being said, we don't really compete with that, right? Because number one, our content is everything outside the K-12 curriculum that people want. So if you go to roomy.org, there'll be stuff on mental health, on job skills, on getting a job, figuring out what careers make sense, what your CD should have, and a whole bunch of things that in general are ones that are not covered by the school curriculum, but that youth are telling us they want more of because we're you know very demand-driven. So our community is growing fast and we listen to what they want. And so in a sense, it doesn't change much for us because our goal is we're going to teach you things that you really want to know you don't learn in school, right? Which is crazy. People don't even learn how a mortgage works or like, you know, how interest rate on your credit card works in school. I mean, these are kind of important things in life. Big, you know, financial decisions will be made based on them. And that's where we kind of fill a void. And to me, I think the quick ability to learn when you're on the go is something that I think it grew because in some form of the pandemic, but you could see how it's going to stay and keep growing over time because it really fills a a niche that traditional schooling didn't fill even if everything opens up and goes back to normal and no one else is really doing right again our competition is social media for the most part you know and again I don't want to sound like a commercial for for Rumi Rumi Rumi.org but I've now filled in some of my day by just grabbing some of your bites because there's such a variety of topics I am impressed with with how it's evolved let's talk about the impact of Rumi and I want some advice on scaling a business because you've gone into 140 countries. You're going to reach 20 million by 2023, which is unbelievable to me. So we can't understate your global impact. But let's talk about the Learn Syria initiative, which is something I understand you launched in 2015. You were helping Syrian children in refugee camps get access to real education, much needed education. Talk to us about what it was like to take on that challenge. That was a good example of why we needed to you know, have volunteer power behind us because as the conflict started growing and there was this need for Syrian kids, there was this idea of a lost generation of kids who were 
millions of them who were refugees on the borders of Turkey, Jordan, and Lebanon, you know, there was really no answer for how to educate them. They're in refugee camps. There are very, very slow-moving systems around government and multilateral organizations. They're not great at, at innovation, frankly. And so there was this growing fear that there's a lost generation of kids who won't have school for years. And then how do you eventually rebuild the country if you have this big gap in a, an entire generation? And so we kind of tried to fill the void by starting to work with on-the-ground partners like UNICEF and others. And we ended up getting people around the world to help us to organize the content, to create the content, and to, you know, be able to launch something that was very localized and local language. And, and so even today, actually, we're about to launch a program that is in Afghanistan. And we use the same idea. We use, you know, communities around the world all using a rapid authoring platform, Rumi Build. And they created content in Dari. If you were to go to darsx.org, D-A-R-S-X.org, you'll literally see the Rumi.org engine, the microlearning engine, all from right to left in Dari. And uh, that's a program we're doing with the mobile phone operator who's pushing this free learning, free of data charges to their subscribers around the country. And so that's one of the ones where, you know, you can get around the barriers that we saw with refugees, with girls' education and other things. Uh, and you just get someone, you know, the ability to learn wherever they are on their device. So other entrepreneurs and managers in our audience, and our audience is vast now, they want to scale globally as well. What advice would you give an entrepreneur who has an opportunity to actually get beyond our borders? What would you tell them? The most important thing for us was finding partners around the world because we knew that we had a solution that was very powerful and that could be useful in Toronto and really throughout North America where bites are growing by far the fastest, but it also had extraordinary impact in other places around the world. And we started to figure out very quickly that the technology is great, but you need to localize and adapt it to the local experience. And so we started to work with local partners. You know, we could cut a win-win partnership where they would be able to use technology like ours that they could never build on their own and didn't have the resources to do. And, you know, we could partner up with someone who has a need for that technology, but can't build it themselves, but does have local on-the-ground presence, cultural context, you know, language knowledge and other things that allow you to sort of dip your toe in at a minimum before sort of going heavy. And so that my advice would be a little bit to, to figure out the people who know those markets well and use them as an in-between step. It's one thing to look at the skill set and the connections of people that know the market well, but what do you look for in chemistry or personality in a long-distance partner? I think the most important thing is that we have to be able to solve a problem that they have. So if we go to a big organization like UNICEF or whoever it is that in theory could use our technology. What we tended to find was that a lot of them, they're going to say that they care about education. They're going to say they care about this or that. But in general, they're not necessarily focused on everything at once. And so unless we could make it clear that they had a problem that we could solve and it was very easy for them to see that, we tended to find that, you know, people will be polite, they'll have a million conversations, and then ultimately it kind of goes nowhere because they have other priorities. And so, you know, you got to kind of put yourself in the other people's shoes and say, first of all, can I be a solution to a problem that they clearly seem to have? And number two, can I make it clear to them? And, you know, in my pitch, make it easy for them to understand that this is in their interest so that you get to yes as soon as possible. And that upfront qualification of partners. It comes a little bit from experience, but it ends up being the most important thing, at least in my experience, because, you know, you can really then get a high return on your time because you're really picking and choosing carefully the ones who make sense first. Have you had one of these partnerships go bad? I wouldn't say they've gone bad, really, but there's been a number. They just never took off, right? If they, if they took off and we actually did something, then usually almost always they worked well. 
The challenge is that sometimes they'll take six months and then not do anything in the end. You know, when you're dealing internationally and particularly with in the education space, I found that there is no shortage of people who are willing to have lots and lots of conversations, particularly at the big organizations. There's a research people and other ideas folks who will just be happy to meet you and have a latte and talk about ideas forever. And the challenge is if you're a startup and you need to hit some numbers, you don't have time for that, right? The hardest ones for us weren't the ones that told us no, because I don't mind if I have a 30-minute meeting and someone says, yeah, this doesn't fit, no. The worst ones were the ones that didn't tell us no. And then six months later, you realize that this was just a waste of time and it was never going to go anywhere. That's a hard-fought lesson, a hard-learned lesson. I like to quote Steve Jobs, and he always said, a successful company ship. And I think you were alluding to the exact same thing. Let's talk about social impact and change. And you alluded to this earlier, that you have expressed your opinions that initiatives like sustainable investing are more like PR stunts. Why is that? And what should companies actually do to fight against things like climate change, social justice matters? education issues, like what do we do and how do we get there? I think that companies can be doing more than they are doing on these pressing social issues. But what I saw at the center of trying to drive sustainable investing at what's the world's largest asset manager with $9 trillion, I mean, kind of a microcosm of capitalism, I saw very clearly that there's a limit to what a for-profit machine can do to address our social challenges. It's a lot earlier than people think. The reality is that the only way we'll get movement on our biggest issues of which I consider climate change and growing inequality to be the two most important are government regulations. Just think of it this way. If you have a sports event and players are playing dirty for 10 or 20 years in that sport because it helps them win games, which is kind of what's been happening with capitalism, right? Companies are underpaying workers. They're burning lots of fossil fuels and sending greenhouse gas emissions into the stratosphere and creating a long-term problem. At some point, you say in that sport, you say, where are the referees, right? Because only the threat of a red card will start to change behavior. And what I think a lot of business leadership is saying, you know, is, oh, don't worry, we'll do all these things on our own, which is the equivalent of those athletes saying, don't worry, you know, good sportsmanship is the answer, even though they've been playing dirty for decades. I think the entire idea is ridiculous. Having done it in the middle and look back over time, it's just one of these things that is a bit of a smokescreen that is intended not to change the system, but to sort of put some green paint on top of a system that's fundamentally, an economic system that fundamentally needs change. My big focus is now is educating people on how that system works. If people know how the system works, they'll know how to change it, what levers you pull. And so one of the things we're actually doing at Remy is starting to build a bunch of bites that help people understand, you know, the different concepts of how the financial system and the economic system work, you know, with the goal of making it easier for youth in particular to understand what's going wrong with climate change and what is the solution that we need, what are the solutions that we shouldn't waste any time on because they're burning valuable time. You know, I think the key point in what you just said is education. The more of us that can educate our colleagues, our peers, our business associates around the real issues of social matters and social justice, then businesses will become real social champions, social entrepreneurs. Here's my favorite part of these interviews, and that is our rapid-fire questions submitted from around the world from the DMZ audience. You ready? One quick question, one quick answer. Let's do it. Most memorable piece of advice you've ever been given and by whom? One of my mentors once told me, be careful of of large organizations for whom the process is the product. You know, the process is all they do, and there is nothing at the end of it. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Best part about being a founder? Honestly, building a great team. The ability to build a great team and wear the captain's armbands with them is is something really exciting and, and just rewarding. If you could spend a day in anyone else's shoes, whose shoes would they be? Oh, 
lot of people are thinking I'm going to say Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. Actually, I would spend a day in the shoes of a black Muslim woman who wears a headscarf. And the reason for that, that's exactly the kind of person I think who faces the hardest challenges today. And I think if I could really enrich myself by spending a day in someone else's shoes, I would want to go to you know the communities and the groups that have the hardest time to really see what it's like from their shoes and, and, and take advantage of that perspective. And I wouldn't spend any time trying to see what the world is like from the position of a billionaire because I'm pretty sure that we already understand their views one way or another. Yeah, we, we've them seen them on TV too many times. Where is your happy place? Uh, honestly, long walks with my dog in the forest. One thing about you that surprises other people. You know, I think they probably read my bio and think I'm pretty sad and a bit of a boring finance person or, you know, or something along those lines. Uh, in reality, I mess around with stand-up comedy. You know, I post some on Instagram. I just like to just mess around. And, you know, even at my age, I think that the last F you mentioned earlier, fun is really important. No matter what you're doing, you have to find a way to make it fun. Otherwise, you know, what's the point? You know, you're not allowed to answer time travel, but what new technology will transform the future? Oh, good. You didn't eliminate the one I was going to clearly say. I honestly think microlearning is going to transform the future. And, and the reason I think that that's the case is that mobile phones are ubiquitous, but they really have not been used for people to truly learn because all that people have done, have done is taken a learning system that belongs in a, a bricks-and-mortar classroom with paper books or some digital thing on your desktop and just port them to mobile. And that's why we're so excited about microlearning because all the evidence we're seeing is that it is filling a massive void for people. The more it replaces social media, something that's a mental health diet, the better for all of us. And finally, my own infielder's choice, what business or industry will be gone in five years? That's a really good one. Um, I would have to say probably the textbook industry, if I could hope for something to go away. I mean, in some sense, maybe it'll go digital, but that old business is selling a 100-page textbook that teaches trigonometry, which hasn't changed in 100 years. And every year they bring out a new edition and they move this, you know, stuff from one chapter to another and somehow charge the public education system 60 bucks for it. I mean, it's ridiculous. I don't understand why we pay for stuff like that. Um, when all of that stuff is available for free, you know, openly and there's better quality learner-centric ones online. So I would hope that that industry would disappear because we'll have better alternatives. You know, my favorite expression is lately, have you heard the term shrinkflation? I haven't. That's shrinkflation is when you buy something and pay more money and get less. Like the cereal box is smaller and it costs you more money. This is yeah. apparently all a result. It's COVID shrinkflation, they, they tell me. Trick Fancy founder and CEO of the Rumi Initiative, Rumi, R-U-M-I-E, Rumi.org. Trick, thank you so much for being guest on the Movers and Shakers podcast. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. And until next time, I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner at Gold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. If you want to get a dopamine release of your own, check us out at bennettgold.ca. See you next time in the morning, everyone, and good night, Dead Man's Bay, Newfoundland. And that's a wrap for this episode of the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at dmz.ryerson.ca for more tips and tools designed to support your business. Until next time.